Hello, I'm JP Smith. Welcome to Research and Markets, the podcast that highlights the key debates in the global economy and financial markets, with reference to the independent research forum's best-in-class institutional investment research providers. In this edition, I'll be examining the latest developments in the outlook for inflation, liquidity and interest rates, including critically China and commodity prices, in order to assess the possible scenarios for global bond and equity markets. And I'll pay particular attention to emerging markets, which as usual during the first two months of the year are being widely recommended across the financial media with mixed success so far. After a very strong start to the financial markets this year, both bond and equity markets fell back during February and now look as though they're range trading, particularly with regard to the 10-year treasuries, which are now back at the start of year levels. A broad gauge of the treasury market has lost around 2.6% in February, leaving them now down very, very slightly in 2023, after the first back-to-back annual losses since at least the early 1970s. 2022 was truly a terrible, terrible year, almost unprecedented for bond investors, hardly any of whom had seen anything like that happen during their lifetimes. Equities have done better, but are now back under pressure, including China and the other highly cyclical sectors and markets, whilst commodity prices have also been under pressure too. And that's where a lot of the bullish sentiment was at the start of this year. So we'll review that later in the podcast. The sort of proximate cause of the correction has been a series of data points in the US recently, underlining the strength of the labour market and service sector. Despite leading indicators, including housing and manufacturing, pointing to a much weaker economy ahead. And this now leads a much greater division in terms of economists about the prospects for the US economy later this year. A soft landing, a hard landing or even no landing at all, as we'll see later. Swaps traders are now pricing in quarter point rate hikes at the March, May and June Fed meetings, which would push the target range for the Fed's key benchmark to five and a quarter to five and a half percent, with a number of prominent inflationistas calling for six percent rates, which is not something we heard much at the start of the year. On the other hand, there's a lot of money on the sidelines and it's building up in short term money market funds, which given yields of around 5% is hardly surprising. Most strategists are now what I would characterise as cautious and pragmatic, looking for range bound trading this year with forecasts for major indices generally near current levels. Now, given that each of the past three years have thrown up major surprises, my own belief is that we should buckle up for increased volatility. But this is now very much a minority opinion. And in any case, my own view is not what this podcast is all about. But I believe that inflation will surprise on the downside from here and that the always reactive Fed will over tighten and that at some point bond yields will break down decisively and bonds will outperform over the course of 2023, that's sovereign bonds. From an equity perspective, sustainable yield should do well, but cyclical areas will be hit. And at these prices, I believe there'll be buyers for US treasuries, despite concern about foreign central banks. In other words, some of that retail and institutional money that's now on the sidelines will find these sorts of yields short term particularly, and even given the massive inversion of the yield curve, sort of 10 year and above duration, quite attractive. 
And that should take care of some of the massive issuance, which uh, a lot of the bond market strategists are so concerned about. And also, as Michael Howell at Cross Border Capital points out, central banks at some point will step up yield curve control, which should underpin duration to an extent, although the Japanese central bank will probably be moving in the opposite direction. So those, for what it's worth, are my own very broad views about what could happen over the course of this year. And with these themes in mind, I'd now like to review some of the key reports and podcasts or events from the best-in-class IRF research providers. I'm going to start with a very recent online event hosted by myself with Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital. Michael being probably the preeminent expert on the impact of liquidity creation and flows on global financial markets. The audio replay and the written transcript of this event, provocatively entitled She Zaps the Bear, is available on the IRF website, along with a very comprehensive set of charts. And I would wholeheartedly recommend it since it is, as I said at the end of Michael's initial presentation, like a tutorial with the smartest guy in the room. Michael goes through the mechanics of liquidity creation in some detail, laying great stress on central bank balance sheets as opposed to simple money creation. He identified correctly a key inflection point in October last year with an increase in liquidity injections from both the Fed and the PBOC and warns investors not to take the notion of quantitative tightening at face value. He believes that whilst rates will be higher for longer, central banks will be careful not to push economies into outright recession. Indeed, he is now in the no-landing camp as far as the US economy is concerned and places great emphasis on liquidity creation in China. Having rightly turned more bullish generally on risk assets back in October, his views are now a little more nuanced. We expect the major stock and bond markets to be largely range-bound, he writes through 2023, probably with some upward bias towards the end of the year. But unlike 2022, what you will see are some very strong areas of absolute returns. That's the unusual feature. Outperformance is going to be related to things like a weaker dollar. Michael expects a further 10% drop in the trade-weighted dollar index over the rest of this year. The China reopening and stimulus and stronger commodity markets. Another view comes from an IRF-hosted online event on the 23rd of February called Into the Unknown Macro Trades and Market Timing from PPG Macro Head Patrick Perrett-Green. And he places more emphasis on um, the money supply and the dollar as the primary source of global liquidity, with the pool shrinking at an unprecedented rate and asset falls destroying pent-up liquidity. And that's certainly what we've seen in both bond and equity markets if we go back to the start of last year. Patrick believes the global economy could experience a dramatic slowing in activity and that inflation will follow suit. Against this background, he finds that many global bond markets are back at attractive levels, with real yields in the US around 1.5% across the curve, break-even rates being around 2.5%. Both, he thinks, are likely to be materially lower before 2023 is over. 
The CPI being distorted by the lag in terms of the fall in shelter prices actually feeding through to the inflation and core inflation indicators. So in the coming months, he expects to see downside surprises in US inflation and other economically sensitive data, which of course is precisely the opposite of what we've seen over the past six weeks or so. He believes the labour market is softer than the picture painted by the January employment data, that housing will remain in recession. I think that is something probably now that is consensus. And residential construction employment is nearing what he terms a willy e. coyote moment. So against this background, PPG macro would not be surprised at some point this year to see US 10 years with the two handles. So obviously that's a very, very, very and increasingly out of consensus call. But it is something I think that we should consider because we have seen dramatic volatility in bond yields over the past three years, culminating in the absolute rout that took place last year. So then if we take a step back, there's a debate, the debate around the secular drivers of inflation. So I've got two quite high profile providers here. The first is Jonathan Wilmot, who's the ex-chief strategist at Credit Suisse. He's a relative newcomer on the IRF platform. And he gave a very, very interesting IRF live event. By the way, of course, audio replay and written transcripts of all of these events are available on the IRF website entitled War, Recession and Transformation. And he has what's currently a relatively unfashionable view on disinflation via productivity enhancing activity, which is something that appears to have gone to the back of people's minds, given the overheating that we've been seeing in the labour market. And he believes that the end game will be radically cheaper energy, transport, food, healthcare, and potentially manufactured goods and services. So the disinflationary forces that we've experienced over the last 30 years before the past 18 months is far from disappearing. Jonathan believes that US productivity, which has been growing around 1% compared with the long run average of 2%, can go through a step change up over the next decade or so, where it's going to be nearer 25 to 3%. And I guess the drivers of that are particularly things like the artificial intelligence technology, which we now see spreading in both manufacturing, but particularly applications in services at a very, very fast rate indeed. So to sum up, he believes that potential growth is actually much higher than the Fed currently thinks. So the other side of the structural inflation debate is taken by Manoj Pradham, Talking Heads Macro, who on February the 21st asks, what is a wage price spiral? Those of you who've listened to the previous Research and Markets podcast will be well aware that Manoj and his colleague Charles Goodhart have been bearish about the outlook for inflation for a while and outline their arguments based on population trends and rising levels of debt in their book published a few years ago, The Great Demographic Reversal, in which they argued that the structural rate of inflation would rise. And of course, that is exactly what has happened. And and the catalyst for this particularly has been the COVID pandemic, which, as Manoj says, may have accelerated many of the structural upheavals that would otherwise have taken years to materialise. 
There are three pandemic-specific factors that make the US economy more interest rate sensitive for now, all of which making it difficult for the Fed to hurt the labour market. These three drivers, first of all, forced savings of the rich, still financing consumption of services, and then creating demand for workers, particularly lower skilled workers, who are obviously in short supply at the moment. Secondly, the massive stock of unfinished homes, which keeps construction employment steady, although some of the indicators suggest that this may not be the case for much longer. And then finally, of course, the shortage of labour. So the big picture view from Manoj is that if the Fed is serious about tightening, they're going to have to cause a re- or getting inflation down to a more reasonable level, closer to 2%. They are going to have to cause a fairly sizable recession, which obviously has implications for equities and also for bond prices too. This is the talking head's big picture view. And as I say, it's been absolutely on the money so far. But Manoj also regularly updates very granular and wide ranging strategic and tactical trade ideas, ranging across fixed income, equity and FX. Institutional investors should contact the Independent Research Forum for a trial of Talking Heads macro research product, because as I said, it's very much worth reading and one of those that combines this sort of helicopter top-down secular analysis with things that are much more granular, covering a very wide range of financial assets and also countries as well. I'm going to give the final word on inflation to Phil Suttle. Phil Suttle is a data watcher and analyst par excellence at Suttle Economics. I did an event with Phil, which is available on the IRF website. His breadth of experience, expertise and knowledge is pretty breathtaking. And he's incredibly quick and accurate in terms of his response in real time to the sort of data releases which come out of all the major economies, including the major emerging economies as well. So his reaction to the recent PCE numbers showing surprising strength in US January consumption was that he came into this January data round expecting the broad shape of developments that have been played out. And I I can endorse that having followed his uh, product, his research for, for some time. So he feels in a good position to offer the following explanation of what is going on. First and foremost, growth seems to be holding up around trend at about 2% and is not yet slowing appreciably entering 2023, although that remains his forecast. Secondly, there's a huge amount of noise in consumption, which needs appropriately smoothing. Thirdly, recent moves in consumer prices are more fundamental, underlining the slowness of the deceleration underway. And in a way that harkens back to what Manoj is saying, there are secular trends in the labour market which are pushing inflation higher over the medium term. So what that means is price moderation in the fourth quarter of last year overstated the disinflationary process. And this has been to some extent now compensated for by the releases which have come out of January and also the weather has played a part. The relatively mild weather in January has played a part in that as well. So he believes that going forward through this noise, the disinflation trend remains intact, albeit slow. And 
He believes that the core PCE deflator by the fourth quarter of this year will be up around 3.8% year on year, which is a view he's had since April of 2022. So on the back of that, Phil's view is that the Fed will undertake three more interest rate hikes to 5.375% in three 25 basis point steps. And that has, I think, fairly benign implications for where we go in terms of bond prices over the remainder of this year. So let's move on for the more US-centric part of this podcast and inflation and look at the broader outlook for financial markets. On the 7th of February, the IRF hosted a very well-attended live presentation in London for Gerard Minak at Minak Advisors. So Gerard, who's been very cautious and pragmatic and absolutely spot on in terms of his view of interest rate movements and financial markets over the past year, argues that with the decline of globalization and structural changes to the US labor market, which again he outlined in some depth, he believes that the trends of the last few decades when interest rates were falling will now reverse. And that's exactly what's been played out in the markets. He was one of the first strategists to argue that interest rates will be higher for longer, making the use of leverage less attractive for investors. And against this backdrop, he believes that the Fed will find it impossible to contain wage inflation without causing a recession. Now, this is the critical bit of his analysis. Equity markets generally fail to discount recessions as they are not as far-sighted as commonly supposed. A conclusion Gerard backed up with a series of charts taken from previous market cycles. He also talked about China, where years of excessive capex he sees as casting a shadow on the future, i.e. he shares my own belief and that of a number of other more dedicated China commentators that the capex-led growth model in China is now dead. However, the next market paradigm, Gerard believes, will revolve around increasing capex and the revival of manufacturing across the major developed economies, with the major outperformers being the US, again, Japan, and emerging markets, but ex-China. And bear in mind, of course, if you're a benchmarked equity investor, that China is over 30% of the EM benchmark. So you'll need to be very, very active manager to make money there. Now, one of the most vital parts of financial markets at the current time is, of course, commodity prices, energy and to a lesser extent industrial metals being key to inflationary expectations via the cost plus inflation, which I would argue is central to the overshoot in inflation that we've seen, especially in Europe, maybe not so much in the US where there are more autonomous trends in the labour market. But we should note that against the consensus at the start of this year, energy prices, that is oil prices, have been weak despite the China reopening. And as for natural gas, where admittedly most people were quite negative at the start of this year, we've seen a further pullback in Europe, an enormous collapse in the US, where at one point natural gas was trading below the $2 mark, having been just above $12 at one point in the middle of 2022. In the oil market, again, against expectations, we've seen big inventory builds in the past two weeks. And analysts are now suggesting that China had stocked up in advance of the reopening, which is a piece of post hoc analysis, if if ever there was one. I don't remember anybody actually arguing that 
at the time. And, and maybe one exception was, was David Scott, who I mentioned on my most recent Research and Markets podcast. David's been one of the lone bearish voices warning about hidden inventory in natural gas repeating itself in oil and derivatives. And given recent IEA data, it looks as though his projection is starting to uh, come to fruition. Now, if this fall in energy prices is sustained, it would be very good in itself, but it should also feed through, for example, to food prices, through fertilizer, and also perhaps reduce wage pressure. Again, perhaps this is more true in Europe than it is in the US. So I should mention another strategist, along with David, who I have enormous respect for, and that's David Roach at Independent Strategy. And I'll talk a bit more about his views on emerging markets later. But he actually has the most contrarian call I've seen for a while, and that's in the energy space, namely to go long natural gas. And I'm not going to go through his arguments here, but they are well worth reading or listening to. And if you want to know his rationale, then please get in touch with the Independent Strategy team via the IRF. So there's also a considerable difference of opinion about the outlook for commodity prices within the investment banking community. And one that sort of seems to repeat itself over time is Ed Morse at City, who tends to be relatively bearish, against Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs, who seems to have a very structurally positive view about commodity prices. And Jeff is anticipating returns from commodities over the next 12 months of 31%. That's based on the S&P Global Sachs Commodity Index. And this is according to a February the 20th note, which is cited on Bloomberg. He believes there'll be widespread commodity shortages this year. Now, on the other hand, Ed Morse, who was one of the few people to predict the collapse in oil prices in 2014, is much more cautious about the oil price, although overall he's bullish on commodities. But this is more to do with what he sees as the rise in alternative energy rather than a view on the sort of core commodity space at the moment. So I must say I'm much more on the Ed Morse side of the debate, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and absolutely central to the course of both bond and equity markets over the remainder of this year. And whilst we're talking about commodities or indeed global bond and equity markets, we can't do this without reference to the outlook in China. So I would characterise the debate around China as liquidity versus structural imbalances. Liquidity, as Michael Howells outlined, being broadly positive, but the structural imbalances potentially putting a break on the impact of this easing on the underlying economy in China. And also, in addition to that, on the bearish side, we have politics, politics between local government and central government in China, and also the sort of deterioration in the geopolitical relationship between the US and her allies on one side and China on the other. And that seems to have deteriorated further over the last couple of weeks or so. So what we see in the markets is the Chinese equity rally, which had reached something like 45% in dollar terms as measured by the MSCI, appears to have stalled and may even be reversing now and this moving in line with commodity prices as well where we've seen a hiatus in the copper price and we've seen energy prices come back too. 
So if we look at one of the China bears, which is uh, Patrick Perrett Green, who I've already cited in this podcast, he points out that Chinese officials are much less optimistic about the Chinese economy than Western investment banks. And he thinks there's excessive optimism built into people's views about China and points to the continued deterioration in the housing market and perhaps more importantly, local government financing vehicles and what's happening there in terms of the land sales propped up by these financing vehicles, which have massive levels of debt. And this raises the issue about the liquidity in China effectively being used to throw good money after bad. In other words, prop up unproductive enterprises, financial institutions, and these local government financing vehicles. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out over the remainder of this year. If you add to that the shrinking working population, which according to Patrick has declined by over 50 million workers in the past five years, and as I said, the sort of stagnant real estate market with seemingly little prospect of of a big recovery, then this doesn't bode terribly well, for example, for industrial metals or for more cyclical assets generally. And then if we look at one of our specialist providers on China, William Hess at PRC Macro, and an event hosted by myself on the 9th of February, which again is available on the IRF website, China Macro 2023, post-party conference, post-zero COVID policy, now what? And William points out that despite the collapse of the zero COVID policy, politics is still one of the major driving forces behind the Chinese economy and financial assets. So William points out that even before COVID, China was facing declining marginal macro benefits from leveraged growth. And now the major sources of that leverage growth are facing sustained limits, despite recent easing rhetoric from the financial regulators. Like me, he's very concerned that local government contingent debt and local government financing vehicle balance sheets are at the forefront of this underlying macro process. And so reopening optimism is based in large part on expectations for infrastructure investment and stronger activity from the property sector, both of which require these local government financing balance sheets to house new investments. But this is out of step with consistently tough language from the Ministry of Finance, which is a softer than pre-zero COVID policies, but which is still calling for local government deleveraging. So in other words, these expectations that the Chinese liquidity expansion will feed through to economic activity in China may actually be a little bit too optimistic. So whilst economic data coming out of China over the short term, maybe until the middle to the end of April, may look quite positive, and it's possible it may even give Chinese financial markets another round of euphoria, this policy impulse should taper during the second half of the second quarter, so late May-June time. The recent weakness in Chinese financial markets and in cyclical assets generally may indicate that investors are now starting to have second thoughts about the extent of the impact of Chinese reopening. Now, of course, it's still possible that the liquidity which the PBOC is is, is flooding into the economy and markets at the moment may have a sort of stimulatory effect. And it is indeed possible, particularly if the dollar were to weaken, that we'll get another round of strength in both the Chinese financial markets and also commodities as well. 
But as time goes on, and particularly as we look towards the end of the second quarter, the, the stimulus is likely to be reined back considerably. And, and it's difficult to see these markets making much headway going out to the end of 2023. So I think a pragmatic approach is called for. And again, if we look at the PRC work, and if we look at the work of some of our other providers like Jonathan Anderson at Emerging Advisors, you can see why investors need to have very detailed and very granular advice and analysis on both the political and economic situation within China. More broadly in emerging markets, the best argument for a bull run is probably for a weakening of the US dollar. Uh, We've seen uh, 10% in the last quarter of 2022, some of which has been, a little bit of which has been given back this year. So there's a sort of hiatus as expectations of Fed tightening have risen. But of course, both EM bonds and equities are highly inversely correlated with the dollar. So if we do see further dollar weakness over the course of this year, then we could see another tick up in emerging markets. And indeed, the MB, the sovereign EM sovereign bond market, is now starting to look quite attractive along with other sovereign bond markets. But a glance at recent developments in the major EM equity constituents, quite apart from China, doesn't really inspire much confidence, to me at least, in the underlying fundamentals. So David Roach at Independent Strategy is one of the few bears on the EM space, and he takes a much longer view than almost any anybody else, a, a really sort of helicopter view, but one that for strategic asset allocators is absolutely vital in my view. And he highlights the potential impact of the deterioration in China's relationship with the West as an additional reason to be cautious, that is, in addition to the underlying internal imbalances in the Chinese economy. So the recent independent strategy report, Mirrored Mistakes, the Red Army Error Embedded in Capitalism, says that if you're managing a portfolio with a duration longer than 10 years, it would be wise to stress test it for a world with no new smartphones, where China's GDP has fallen 15 to 20 percent as its internal economy adjusts to a draconian, exogenous fall in its share of global trade, as well as starvation of semiconductors and other forms of high tech. He points out that the impact of this increased geopolitical tension goes both ways and says, I have no doubt that if Taiwan is seriously interdicted, which includes embargoes, the US will defend it and the full gamut of sanctions will be used against China. The cost will be large for the US, say 5% of GDP, but nothing to the 15 to 20% hit to China. So overall, looking at 2023, independent strategy and neutral global equities and advise investors to invest in solid cash flow and low leverage companies. And he goes on to say, and and David writes beautifully, I mean, you really should read his research. He goes on to say, where our limited intelligence can understand the business model and the manager owner qualifies as not being a narcissist, egomaniac or an asshole. And I I can't think whom he might be referring to. So then if we look at the rest of the asset class, as I said, the outlook is decidedly mixed, at least from an equity investor's perspective. I'd be a bit more positive, I think, as a a bond investor. Uh, We've seen the Adani Group saga play out, or it's playing out as we speak. The report from Hindenburg Research, who 
termed Adani the biggest fraud in corporate history, though the Adani group vehemently denies this. The bears suggest this is symptomatic of problems of investing in India. I'm not entirely sure this is fair. The major problem I had with investing in India was always that valuation seemed too high. But you could always find good companies and you could actually find companies with quite good corporate governance as well, of whom Adani were emphatically not one. Now, Stephen Holden at Copley Fund Research analyzes the positions of active fund managers across a number of asset classes, but particularly in emerging markets. And he points out in a recent report, the overwhelming majority of actively managed Asia ex-Japan equity funds have stayed away from any of the Adani group of companies, despite their growing prominence in regional benchmarks. And he actually quantifies this. The massive price and market cap increases propelled the Adani companies to over a 1% weight in the Asia ex-Japan benchmark by the end of 2022. Meanwhile, among the active Asia ex-Japan funds in Copley's analysis, average holding weights remain negligible. In fact, less than 2% of the funds under Stevens' coverage have been invested in any of the Adani companies since 2021, and he's got charts to back this up. So this is actually a sort of vindication of active management in emerging markets and in Asia ex-Japan as well, and does suggest that to an extent, active managers do take this uh, governance considerations into account. However, I'm not sure it reflects very well on the index providers, particularly on MSCI. So that that is India at the moment. Actually, one of the main drivers for weightings in India is what people think about China, because if you're bearish on China, you tend to increase your India weighting as one of the other very large markets in the EM universe and vice versa. So what we saw at the start of this year was people reducing their India weightings to put money into China. Now I suspect that process has come to a halt and we might even see the reverse as as we go through this year. So I'll talk a bit more about India in a, a future podcast because they're far more moving parts than this. Elsewhere in EM, there have been developments in South Africa. These are definitely not positive developments. We've seen the replacement of the head of ESCOM, which is the big state-controlled utility. That's André de Reuter. And he has launched a ferocious attack on the ANC, the so-called feeding trough, accusing it of being at the heart of a system of crony capitalism and corruption. In turn, the ANC has accused him of bearing, quote, a regressive political and ideological agenda. Now, this is not good for perceptions of South Africa or the RAND, to put it mildly. And over the past 10 years, ESCOM has been a running sore and has been something which has been a uh, definitely a, a sort of big factor there in the background. Now, crucially, on the day the chief executive was ousted in late February, the National Treasury has said that it would pay off and partially take over about $14 billion or two thirds of ESCOM's debts. So it's possible in the short term we may see some relief coming through to the RAND. But this is perhaps symptomatic of broader developments within the South African political arena. And unfortunately, for those of us who put quite a lot of faith in Cyril Ramaphosa and his government, we're going to need to see, I think, some sort of remedial action to restore confidence. 
If we look at two of the other major emerging equity markets, namely Korea and Taiwan, John Anderson from Emerging Advisors published a note on the 24th of February highlighting the fact that Taiwan, which had been a big outperformer, is more exposed than Korea in aggregate to global trade, which is already in recession and is likely to remain there through 2023 and also through its exposure to China, which could become decidedly problematic as well, especially obviously in the dominant tech sector and the uh, fab companies. So going forward, he would tend to favour Korea. In a weak external environment, Korea still at least has what he calls normal domestic demand conditions, whereas Taiwan as ever is stuck in long-term stagnation and decline at home. So one of the brightest spots in emerging markets over the past year or so has actually been Latin America, and it's not very often that one can say that. In the middle of February, I hosted a breakfast meeting for Marcus Buscaglia from Alberdi Partners, who are one of the preeminent research providers across Latin America, focusing really on the link between the political situation in each of the major countries and the underlying economies and financial markets. And as usual, there are big differences between what's happening in the individual countries. So broadly speaking, Marcos is constructive towards Brazil with some caveats. I mean, he believes that the pressure from the government on the central bank means that interest rates in Brazil will come down quite a long way before the consensus currently anticipates, which obviously is is positive. Now, medium term, he's not so constructive about the fiscal dynamics, but over the short medium term, the Central Bank of Brazil will be the first major central bank in the world to reduce rates, and that's likely to start in June, so much earlier than is currently priced in. He's also relatively constructive about Chile. Obviously, external factors like the copper price are important, but the internal, key internal political driver and something of a watershed as far as Marcos is concerned was the defeat of the new constitution in the plebiscite in in July. And he thinks this has halted the sort of drift to the left, which has been taking place there for the past four years and has meant that Chile has been one of the worst performing emerging markets and indeed equity markets anywhere in the world over that period of time. And and don't forget, of course, Chile used to be the poster child for neoliberalism. The other place where he's relatively constructive is is perhaps more surprising, and that is Argentina. And, And Greenmantle as well, that's Neil Ferguson's firm, see Argentina as a rare bright spot where with less than six months to go until the presidential election, there's an 85% odds of a clear opposition victory. So that is a victory over the Peronistas and uh, over the left. And, And this should help result in some relatively constructive policy and reforms for Argentina once this election is out of the way. Now, This improved outlook is to some extent reflected in the three-year performance of the Argentinian stock market, which had been one of the best in the world, even in US dollar terms. And unfortunately, it's a somewhat small and illiquid market. If you look at the MSCI Argentina, for example, there's seven constituents with a market capitalization of only $8 billion at the current time dominated by the energy company YPF. But nevertheless, in economic terms, both Green Mantle 
and uh, Alberti partners are relatively constructive about this. On the less positive side come Peru, where obviously there's been enormous amount of disruption with the removal of the part of the previous administration, and also Colombia, which historically has had one of the more sort of constructive political outlooks, but where the new president, Gustavo Petro, has now denounced neoliberalism and railed against business people who he said were plotting to frustrate his reforms. So there is every possibility that the state's role in pensions, health and the labour market will be expanded. And um, clearly, investors are very concerned as to how he will fund these expensive campaign pledges. And Colombia is suffering from a bloated budget deficit, persistent inflation and a high current account deficit. So overall, it's a relatively mixed outlook for the Latin American markets over the remainder of 2023. Internal politics are obviously critical, more critical perhaps than in most other market regions. But also external factors are also very important, most notably commodity prices and also, of course, as everywhere, the course of US interest rates. It's encouraging, perhaps, that markets like Brazil, Chile and the one we haven't mentioned so far, Mexico, have seen greatly increased inflows from overseas. And in fact, one observation that Marcos had, which I would totally agree with, is that foreign investors at the moment tend to be a bit more upbeat, in fact, quite a lot more upbeat on the region than locals. And I think the reason for this probably is that a lot of local investors are more emotionally involved and more connected with these sort of political developments in places like Brazil and Mexico, which they don't necessarily see as constructive. So it will be interesting to see how this difference plays out and who will be right over the remainder of this year. Right. Well, that's it for this month. I think it's been fairly wide ranging. I hope I've highlighted some of the key debates around the medium and long term structural themes in financial markets through the work of some of the 300 or so independent research forum providers. There's no avoiding complexity, I'm afraid, if you want to thrive in financial markets, as the days of buy and hold based on very low interest rates and the move up to peak passive funds are now behind us. So if you're an institutional investor who would like an introduction to any of the providers whose work I've highlighted today, please do get in touch with me at jp at independentresearchforum.com. With that, it's goodbye until the next Research and Markets podcast. <laughs>